Hey everyone, welcome to the very first episode of the Truth Alone podcast. My name is Justin Moranti, here with my father, Robin Moranti, and we are so happy to have you on board. Thanks for listening. A special shout out to everyone at Canyon Springs Church in Middleton, Idaho, and everyone at Family Heritage in La Quinta, California. A few of you said you would be listening, so hope you enjoy the podcast, hope this finds you well. And I hope you find this encouraging after a long year, to say the least. It's kind of a strange time to be releasing a podcast, I guess. But we have certainly been one of the strangest years in our lives and probably in, in American history. So, uh, But at the same time, God, we know God is sovereign and we are encouraged by the things we see him doing in our lives. And we want to encourage you as well. So uh, we hope you enjoy this journey that we're on. We're going to start off with a series on worldviews, which is kind of a foundational topic to pretty much everything else we'll end up talking about. And we don't know exactly how many parts it's going to be. We do know that the first topic is going to be about information science. And we're going to divide it up into topics that relate to worldviews. So we have a two-part, two episodes, I guess I should say, on information science. We've divided it up into two parts. So today is part one. And then we'll get into part two next time. So just a, a brief overview of worldviews. And before I do that, let me just read 1 Peter 3.15. This is kind of a foundational verse to everything we're going to do on this podcast. Let me just read it very quickly. It's 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for a hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And that really covers kind of our call to live as Christians. What First, we honor Christ as holy. We submit to him as Lord. And then as we live, we're always prepared, if someone asks, to give a defense for our faith. Um, some of what we're talking about will be apologetic in nature, not necessarily an apologetics podcast, but we will talk about apologetics. And as we do that, you notice the last part of that verse talks about gentleness and respect. We do want to be careful. It can be just as easy for Christians as for non-Christians to not be respectful of people that oppose our views. So we just want to be careful not to live that way, certainly not to present what we're going to present that way, and to respect people that have opposing views as people that are made in God's image just as we are. Okay, so having said all that, uh, before we jump into information science, I just want to give a brief overview of worldviews. A definition, let me just read you a definition of worldview. So it's a network of our most basic beliefs about reality in light of which all observations are interpreted. So most of our discussion uh, for the Worldview series is going to center around the debate over origins, which most of you probably know as the creation versus evolution debate. Some of you might know it as the man's word versus God's word debate, which is how places like ICR and Answers in Genesis will frame it. But regardless, there's a problem whenever you talk about worldviews and evidence, and both sides encounter the same issue. Because if you notice in the, the second part of that definition I just read, it, it reads, in light of which all observations are interpreted, which basically means that we all start with a worldview, fundamentally, we all have one, and we take the evidence that's presented to us about the world around us and we fit it into our existing worldview. So you may have all the best arguments in the world for your point of view, but when you present that evidence to the other side, a lot of times it doesn't change their mind at all. And a lot of people are frustrated by this. 
both sides use something called a rescuing device, which is basically a way of explaining an apparent contradiction in your worldview. So, for example, an evolutionist, I'll give you two examples, one for each side. So an evolutionist, they had to come up with ways to explain comets because comets don't last very long, at least from uh, an evolutionary perspective. The universe is millions, billions of years old. Comets, actually, because they're basically giant balls of ice, <laughs> and every time they sun, they lose a large percentage of their mass. And so comets realistically can't survive for millions of years. They can maybe, maybe tens of thousands at the most, but most comets would become, I don't know if extinct is the right word, but they would, they would die out after thousands, uh, thousands of years, definitely not millions. So the fact that we see comets in the universe is evidence for a young universe. So evolutionists came up with something called the Oort cloud, which most of you probably heard of in school. It's a cloud that generates comets. It's outside of our view, apparently, and it's something we can't observe. But um, the idea is that it generates comets and spits them into the, <laughs> the solar system, and then comets then start their orbit around the sun. Like I said, it's something that can't be observed, which is usually what rescuing devices are. They're usually pretty clever ways of explaining something in a way that also can't be disproven. Since, since we can't observe it, we also can't say it's not there. So that's an example of an evolutionary rescuing device. By the same token, Christians also do this. We have the Bible as our foundation, so if something seems to contradict the Bible, we'll go back and we'll say, what does the Bible actually say? And if there's a contradiction, we also have rescuing devices. So, for example, a popular one that comes up in debates is distant starlight. So if, if stars, we know that stars are millions of light years from Earth. So our contradiction, apparent contradiction, is how can we see that starlight if the universe is not millions of years old? And there are a number of, there's actually a number of rescuing devices for this. The most popular one and the one I tend to line up with is if you read Genesis 1, it seems that God made everything mature. That's from a straightforward reading of the text. It seems that Adam, for example, was created mature. He was not a baby when he was created. He was, a, he was created perfect, but he was created as a full-grown human. The trees, the plants, God didn't just put seeds out and wait for them to grow. It seems from Scripture that he created everything fully mature. Um, same with the sun, the moon. You could take it even a step further, and it also says that, um, that God created light on day one. So um, a pretty simple explanation is that God created the light that exists between here and the stars, um, and he created apparent maturity. So when you, when even at day one, when Adam was, uh, or I guess day six, when Adam was created, um, he would look up and see stars already, uh, even though they are like I said, millions of light years away. So that's an example of a Christian rescuing device. Um, and you'll notice both, both, both sides require faith, and we'll get into that more. Um, it's our contention that evolution, and, or more specifically naturalism, is actually a religion. Um, and we'll argue that more later, but, but both sides require faith. Um, Ultimately, what we're going to argue when it comes to worldviews is that the best way to present this to the other side is not to necessarily throw evidence um, at them, even though that, that is a good—it can be effective, and it is good to have evidence for your faith. 
And our first episode today is going to be all about evidence. But um, ultimately, the, the most effective argument is probably to point out that the opposing side actually borrows from the biblical worldview. In fact, we would argue that it's impossible to make sense of certain things that we observe if you don't have a biblical worldview. Um, argue, uh, examples of that would be things like the laws of logic, the laws of morality, um, laws of uniformity in nature. Um, and to give you an example, like take laws of morality, an evolutionist really doesn't have an explanation for why he would even have laws of morality. It, morality doesn't really make sense in that worldview if you really break it down. Um, but he's essentially borrowing that from a biblical worldview. And if you take the biblical worldview away, he actually doesn't have that to stand on. Um, and this gets a little, it gets a little complicated. And so we're kind of saving that for future, some future episodes, but that is kind of where we're headed. I just want to kind of say that up front, the worldview series that we're doing is going to head in that direction. Um, the best articulation of this argument that I've seen is from a guy named Jason Lyle, who wrote a book called The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And he has a lot of stuff on YouTube. He's a very good speaker. Um, and I, I can definitely recommend him, I think. He seems very humble. He definitely has the First Peter 3.15, the end of that verse. He seems to have that part. Um, and I think he even talks about that verse in, in a lot of his um, talks. Um, and the reason I say that is because once you, once you understand this argument, um, it can be pretty easy to make people look foolish. Like I, you can, I've seen examples of other people, not just Jason Lyle, but um, people that have debated publicly on stage and, and they're debating atheists and they can actually make the other side look fairly foolish. Um, and we, uh, our humanness can kind of like that. We like seeing that in, in a way, but it's, um, like I said earlier, we want to be very careful not to become prideful and to stay humble if um, even if we do understand this argument and we're able to articulate it well. Um, so I just want to reiterate that. Uh, but it is a very powerful argument. We're going to revisit that. Today we're going to talk about a guy named Werner Gitt, who is the father of the field of information science. Uh, my dad will be talking a lot about him in a little bit. Information science just to set it up, it's relatively new compared to other fields of science. Uh, it's very technical. It's totally legitimate and very reputable, a, a reputable branch of science. But it really became influential around the turn of the century, around the year 2000. It started to really gain momentum. And there was a document in 2001, uh, not coincidentally, called The Scientific Descent from Darwinism. And it was signed by a number of scientists all of them PhDs. In fact, you had to have a PhD, and it had to be in a related field, which would have been math, physics, biology. I think AI is even one of the fields, which is interesting. And if you look at the list, uh, today it's over 1,000. I think as of 2019, it was over 1,000 people, which might not sound like a lot, but all of these people not only had to have, or these scientists, rather, uh, not only had to have that requirement, but they also were putting their reputations on the line. A lot of these people were professors at places like Yale, Princeton, Stanford, MIT, Berkeley, UCLA, just 
you know, not only Ivy League schools, but just high-level scientific schools. So everyone who signed it was basically putting their reputation on the line. Some of them might have been putting their jobs on the line. It wasn't something these people even had to do, but people went out of their way to do this. So they were highly convicted. And, and the reason is because they felt that there was a number of holes in the evolutionary theory. And the evolution is being presented still to this day. It's being presented as fact, as dogma. So there are a growing number of scientists that are pushing back on this. And speaking of pushback, if you find in your own experience that people push back on you, maybe even disrespectfully, well, when you're presenting some of these arguments, uh, don't be surprised. It's definitely out there, that kind of disrespect and sort of a push to delegitimize people that hold a view that contradicts evolution. In fact, if you Google scientific dissent from Darwinism, you'll see the document presented. But one of the first things you'll see is a Wikipedia entry from um, someone I'm assuming is a um, evolutionist. But that you'll see that the, the language that's used can be very disrespectful, you know, attempting to discredit some of these scientists. Not just discredit the document itself, but discredit the actual scientist. So that perception is still out there. And again, just not, not to harp on this, but it's very easy to become defensive because of that when you're engaging in this debate to sort of fight fire with fire and sort of be disrespectful in kind. And we just, again, want to be careful not to do that. So just bear in mind that it comes with the territory and we want to obviously present the evidence in the best way we can and articulate it as well as we can, but also be ready to stay humble and not be defensive if that does happen. So what we're going to do now, we're going to go right into information science. We're going to set it up with um, sort of a, a talk about information itself uh, and how it's developed over the last few centuries, how it's progressed rapidly. And we're going to tie that into information as it is seen and as it's observed rather in nature um, and as it points to a creator as its source. So we're going to tie all that in. So stick with us for a few minutes. We're going to... Um, like I said, start with information itself. My dad's going to start us off on that. Dad, did you want to get us started? Yes, I do. Um, well, I don't really need to tell anybody that we live in an age that is technology-driven to a high degree. Mm -hmm. And to some, it sounds redundant for me to say that. Uh, but to others, it's not all that redundant. And that's primarily due to the age of the listener. So for the sake of those in the younger generation, say let's say those that are born around the year 2000, maybe a few years before, a few years after, whom I know who have grown up only knowing these technologies and perhaps thinking this is entirely normal for everyone and always has been, as it is normal for a good part of the Western civilization now, truth be known, these conveniences that I'm speaking of have not always been around. Mm -hmm. And I say this primarily for the younger generation who have grown up only knowing these technologies from their childhood. Right. Um, I know that five and six year olds, seven year olds that have cell phones. But for the record, when I was a kid, no such thing. There was no such thing as a cell phone or nor, nor were there computers. I wasn't really exposed to computers till I went into the military. The government's had the computers for a while, but. As far as computer in every home, didn't happen till uh, recent history. Right. But it's only been uh, in relatively recent human history 
that information or news, that sort of information has traveled any faster than a horse. From the era known as B.C., which is before Christ, or B.C.E., now uh, before the Common Era, common up until era. the yeah. yeah, up until the 1700s, travel and likewise the information dissemination was restricted to the speed of a horse, or the sailing vessel, or really uh, a combination of both, as mail would be delivered to docks via a horse or a horse and carriage or whatever, and then loaded onto a ship maybe, and right. uh, then sail it, they ship it off to another harbor, <laughs> whether it be in the same country further up north or south and or to another country entirely, where it could then uh, be offloaded back onto a horseback and then uh, sent off to its intended destination. Right. That's why uh, when people read stories uh, about the American Revolution, um, a lot of times it will strike them that uh, because they haven't thought of this before necessarily. When you see like a battle taking place on the American mainland, that sort of happens after the war has ended because the, the treaty was signed back in, in Europe and the people on in America hadn't heard that yet. So the months go by while the information is going, you know, being uh, sent overseas and they're still fighting the war um, and people are actually dying needlessly because the war is actually over. Mm -hmm. um, which sounds just ridiculous today because you know we get this crazy. instantaneous information, but right. Um, so things did change pretty dramatically after that, but um, yeah, they've been changing. Yeah, and I, you know, I heard heard a story not too long ago about some Japanese soldiers who were still holding up on some island out in the West Pacific, Southwest Pacific, thinking that they're still at war. Mm. Because they didn't have any communication on that island, right? You know, so World, World War Two. I'm assuming. Yeah, World talking. War Two. Yeah. Yeah. And and here they're living in this age with everybody's got cell phones and information yeah. flying all over the place, and but they're held up on this island. They're thinking they're still in World War Two. Yeah, interesting. But they're not fighting anybody, <laughs> <laughs> but but that just shows you what what can happen. So continuing. I was talking about, in the, oh, it's up until the 1700s. Yeah, but in the 1800s, when the gas engine was invented and then the automobile came about and other gas-powered vehicles, mm -hmm. whereby news or information could be carried from one various locale to another and spread in that way, that increased the speed by which news could be re reached one place or another as well. But in 1830... We had a major increase in the speed of information, and that was the invention of the telegraph. Mm -hmm. Because the telegraph's um, information traveled at the speed of electricity. That's roughly the speed of light. Okay. But of course, that was, even that was dependent on the installation of electrical wiring to carry the message, and then it was still only deliverable to localities that had a telegraph station. Right. And then it, you know, had to be printed on newspaper and passed around or whatever. Right. But it was still a vast advancement over the horseback delivery days. Right. And then it was in 1914, World War One started, and it continued for four years to 1918 before the end of the war. But before the end of the war, the use of air flight came into play in the mm -hmm. way of hot air balloons and perhaps hydrogen or helium balloons. They were all employed as reconnaissance devices only at that time where they mm -hmm. could get up higher and see over the horizon to see where enemy troops were holding out. But they were employed as those um, 
reconnaissance devices, but gradually, even during World War War One, leave it to mankind, they took a good invention, the airplane, and turned it into uh, an offensive weapon. <laughs> yeah. But in November then of, of 1920, the radio was introduced as a delivery method of communication, and the first broadcasting of events took place on April 11th, 1921. I think it was a, a world heavyweight boxing match, <laughs> if, I, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yeah. That's before my time. But I re do realize that was even 1921. Now, that's a century ago. Yeah. Almost so, literally 100 years ago. Yeah. Next month. Well, it was right? April, but yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. close to <laughs> Yeah. But um, so then in the 1900s, Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in 1927. Right. Uh, air, air travel became more commonplace, which also brought airmail into the picture and also paved a faster way, I should say, for transoceanic deliveries as well. Also became a part of the culture. Mm -hmm. And, of course, around the time, uh, radio, which also traveled at the speed of electricity, was hitting the scene and was close to real-time information delivery. Uh, right. But the advantage that radio had over the telegraph, even though they traveled at the same speed, was that you weren't required to know the Morse code, which mm -hmm. I have not yet learned that myself. And I, I, I know but, SOS. That's all I know. Yeah, SOS. I know. <laughs> There's certain things I know. Yeah. But uh, but the other advantage is that it could reach directly into the homes of the general populace. Right. For Morse code could not. But today we have electronic transmission as well, uh, electronic transmission of news information. And we could consider the radio as being a part of that information transmission. But it's really a whole new ballgame today uh, with the level, with the internet, the independent news outlets that generally come across the internet. And of course, we have cell phones. Mm -hmm. of which I would guess just about, I would say probably, there's no one listening that doesn't have a cell phone. But all this electronic transmission advancement, it's all happened within my own lifetime. Mm -hmm. Like I said, when I was a kid, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, we had telephones, but no computers and that sort of thing, no internet. Mm -hmm. uh, but so basically, considering I'm still alive, all this real-time information dissemination has happened within one generation being my generation, mm -hmm. even though I know there's other generations that have generated since then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty staggering to think mm -hmm. about how quickly, I mean, it, it, relatively speaking, looking at all of history, um, there's a guy named Mike Winger who has a pretty popular podcast now. Um, and he was asked about this passage in Matthew 11:23. Let me just read it very quickly. Um, the passage reads, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And he was asked, if that was true, why didn't Jesus come in the in the time of Sodom? Why? why? I think the, the person asking was sort of asking, why did God extend mercy to these people and not to these other people in, at, at this time? That's a pretty deep question that, I mean, there are different answers you might have for that. Uh, but one of the things Mike Winger brought up, which was interesting, is that kind of along the lines of what you're discussing, Dad, with all these different technological advancements, uh, back at that time, so we're talking the time of Jesus, which would have been about 2,000 years ago. Right, right. It was a kind of a pivotal time in human history as it relates to information dissemination, which is exactly what we're talking about here. 
there was something called the Codex, Codex, which I'm sure some of our mm -hmm. listeners have yeah, heard of, which is an ancient manuscript form, a book form, uh, a form of disseminating books, basically, or disseminating writing. So it was it was an advanced form at the time, which increased the speed at which things could be communicated, in increased efficiency, and at the same time, there was. Uh, of course, Rome, the Roman Empire was the dominant empire at the time, and they were building roads that were much more advanced than had been uh, in previous generations, previous years. So the roads also helped to increase the efficiency of information. Mm -hmm. And so Mike Winger's response was, and he was just speculating, but he was saying, you know, God may have been waiting for a specific time in history to send his son. And, you know, he has reasons for why he has people living in certain times. And uh, by his providence, we're living in the 21st century. Uh, and we're all kind of limited by our the time we live. But it's an interesting thought that God seems to, I mean, he, I'm sure he definitely understands the technology and the, the, the way information is disseminated because he's, he's the author of information to begin with, which ties into what we're going to talk about later. But it's just kind of an interesting thought. Um, and, and when you talk about all these relatively new developments, it kind of makes you, it makes people speculate about uh, end times prophecies. And we, and a lot of people have maybe taken it a little too far and trying to predict based on where they see the technology going and that kind of thing. But it is interesting to think about uh, some of the, where we are now and, and what, the technology that is would be required for certain biblical prophecies to take place. And a lot of that technology is already here. So, mm -hmm. but that's a, another discussion. What we really want to do now is kind of tie in everything we just talked about and talk about information as it pertains to nature um, and how it kind of ties in. So we're going to, we're going to talk about DNA and dad, did you want to start us off on that topic? Yeah. DNA is uh a pretty deep subject, and uh, <laughs> we get in. When that's, we why, get that's, into why the passing, and, that's why I'm passing. Yeah. it off to you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we get into the nuts and bolts of that. Uh, we're going to get into some pretty deep things. And but before we go there, I feel it's important to touch on a few of the concepts of information and exactly what it is. And Justin, you know that I'm not an expert in information science, nor and my PhD on the subject. I'm going, but I'm going to lean on somebody that I know is, and that someone is someone you mentioned, Justin, Doctor Werner Gitt, mm -hmm. who is in fact a PhD in information science, and the head of the Department of Information Science over the last several decades, mm -hmm. which is headquartered in Berlin, Germany, and he's written a book entitled "In the Beginning Was Information," uh, from which I'll be taking a quote here and there. And hopefully along the way, I'll remember to announce that I'm going to be quoting from him. <laughs> so you'll know that he gets the credit for what's being said. But if you read the book, if you happen to read that book, the uh, in the beginning was information, you will know that he gets into some pretty technical aspects of information. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to admit, I've been reading it and things I never even connected with information I'm, I'm learning. It's pretty remarkable. So for that reason, I'm not going to attempt to communicate any of these deep topics, but I will be sharing some of the findings that I found interesting and thus feel that they're going to add uh, value to the subject of this podcast. Mm -hmm. So here I am. I'm going to announce that uh, I'm starting with a, 
a quote from Dr. Werner Gitt, where mm-hmm. he states, information is fundamentally on equal ground with energy and matter. And that quote from Dr. Gitt is saying quite a bit, considering that Albert Einstein, which I know many of you know who Albert Einstein is, but he's considered to be a genius in a relatively recent history, just the last century, actually, when he lived. Uh, he concerned himself much with matter and energy, developing his theory of relativity, which has been proven true after having survived heavy scrutiny from the scientific community. Right. Right. Let me just jump in real quick. Dr. Gitt is actually very significant when you were talking about information science. I mentioned earlier he's kind of the father of this of the, the field. Mm-hmm. Well, most people know who John MacArthur is. He wrote a book in, I think it was around 2000. It's called The Battle for the Beginning. A very good book that I read. And he actually had a series. He did a series of, I guess you call them sermons. They were like 12, 12 sermons on Genesis. Kind of, I think it was all just Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, 2 verse 1. Or like first part of Genesis 2, it ended. Um, so basically just defending the kind of the six days of creation as it's as it's talked about in the Bible. And you wouldn't think that you could do 12 sermons on that, but uh, he easily filled 12 sermons. It, it went into all kinds of stuff. Um, and one of the things he talked about was information science. He talked about Dr. Werner Gitt, who at the time, this is when information science was really starting, like, to, like I said, gain traction. And he, uh, John MacArthur, talked about information science as kind of what was bringing down the theory of evolution at the time, which is kind of a crazy thought. And probably a lot of people hear that and they're like, well, the theory of evolution is still predominant, still widely held. Um, It's It's given fact. Right. It's almost, it's, yeah, it's like a dogma to a lot of people. And <laughs> that's not as true as people think. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of cracks in the foundation. And information science, the reason we started with this topic is because it's, it really gets to the heart of the theory. There's something called a biogenesis, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But it's really foundational to the theory of evolution. And, and information science really kind of picks that apart. But what's what's crazy, and I kind of touched on this earlier, there's still so much um, pushback when it comes to the scientific legitimacy. There's a video, so there's a video on YouTube uh, with a guy named Ken Ham. Most people, most of you have probably heard of Ken Ham, who's the founder of Answers in Genesis. And back a few years ago, he opened the Ark Encounter out in Kentucky. I know, Dad, you've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty spectacular. It's, it's a life-size model of the Ark. If you haven't been there or you haven't heard of it, when he initially opened it, he invited Bill Nye, who was, who is well-known as a, a, an atheist and kind of one of the leading proponents of evolution because he's the science guy, quote unquote. But, um, he, because he had debated Ken Ham in, in a previous uh, previous years, he had debated him like publicly. Ken Ham sort of invited him to come to the Ark. It was kind of a way of extending grace, I think, and and a way to kind of just get a dialogue going. And they they filmed the whole thing. They had both had camera crews. It's on YouTube if you want to look at it. It's like two hours of Bill Nye walking through the Ark, and they're talking back and forth and. Um, they're talking about the – they get into, like I said, the scientific legitimacy of what Ken Ham was doing. And Bill Nye kind of starts 
don't want to say ridiculing. He just starts being pretty disrespectful towards Ken Ham and his staff. And and Ken Ham at one point says, you know, he brings up one of his staff members and says, you know, this person has a PhD. And are you saying that this person's not credible? And Bill Nye just pretty much flat out says, yeah, I'm saying she's not credible. And his view is pretty typical of the way people view science that's coming from an opposing viewpoint now. You know, you hear people say, follow the science all the time. And like what people have sort of a perception of science and what it is, but we can make a very strong argument that, that like dad, you mentioned uh, Dr. Gitt's book and how technical it is. And, and I can vouch for that. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's extremely technical. There's another book by a guy named Doc, uh, Dr. John Ashton. Um, I think he's from Australia. And he wrote a book called Evolution Impossible, which I think both you and I have read. And, right. and he talks about, uh, actually, he's, uh, he talks about a biogenesis in that book. And I'll reference that later. Um, but and again, another very highly technical book. Like There's chapters that you have to really kind of power through if you want to read it. And anyone who reads these things, to, to come away saying these, these are not legitimate scientific people in a, in a legitimate scientific discipline is just, there's an arrogance to that. And unfortunately, so we just want to say that this isn't all just stuff we're coming up with and, and just making this stuff up. This is, there's a lot of very, very smart people that, that believe these things. So that's something to be encouraged about, but uh, just be aware that, that, that opposing view can be, there can be some pretty serious pushback. And again, that kind of comes with the territory. So, yeah. Now you had a few, there's a few questions we need to consider about uh, information uh, when we're talking about information science. Did you want to get into those, Dad? Yeah, there are a few questions as we go along this journey that we should consider. One of those is, the question is, um, what is the function of information? And another question we could ask is, how is it transmitted? Mm. And thirdly, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, what is the source of information found in living organisms? You know, because we all know that information is flying in our face from what seems like every direction <laughs> yeah. by way of newspapers, of which I don't receive one anymore, and having been replaced somewhat by radio and television, and not to mention the internet. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to mention <laughs> it again. <laughs> no, um, <clears throat> but as well, there's there's also information processing systems found almost everywhere. In the way of computers, which I had mentioned uh, didn't exist when I was a teenager, uh, numerical control equipment, automatic assembly lines. Also, we might also in- want to include car washing machines. And it's it's kind of interesting how much information is required to run one of those automated car washing machines, uh, if you happen to use one, as I do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy what's going on behind the scenes as a yeah. I work as a computer programmer and like there's, there's so much more going on behind uh, the scene when, when it comes to websites or web apps or any of these programs that people don't, a lot of people don't realize. Um, I was going to say too, like technology is, it's really kind of a mixed blessing because like, um, like for example, with phones, uh, with, with the iPhone, for example, um, like what a cool thing that was when it came out in 2007 and you know, it's kind of changed like people who saw that for the first time were just blown away and it kind of changed, it really changed history. It changed uh, the way we live. You know, everyone's got, like you said, dad, the phone's in their hip pocket basically now. Oh yeah. Or uh, I mean the new, the news is in their hip pocket. 
but along with that, there's some negative effects as well. There's an, there's an addictive component to social media and there's attention spans. I know a lot of parents struggle with their children, you know, trying to, uh, their teenagers that have cell phones and things like that. So there's, there's a lot of fallout from some of these great inventions. And in the same way, when we're talking about technology, there's a couple, or not technology, but information rather. There's kind of a natural line in the sand in terms of what we do with the information. So there's so much of it and we have to, one of the negative things of having so much information is we have to determine what's true, what isn't. It's much easier to be deceived, I think, um, because there's there's with more good information, there's also more bad information out there. So like our filters are just on overload all the time, right? Our, our natural, uh, when I say filters, I mean like our, our brains. We're just constantly having to, to discern what's true and what isn't. But in another way, what's interesting about all this information is it really gets to the heart of people much easier, I think. I think you could argue. There's a list of people, a long list of people throughout history that have been changed because of their determination to sort of disprove God. <laughs> people like, I think, like C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell is another famous one. Um, just a number of people that either were atheists or unbelievers and then as they sought out to actually read the Bible and disprove God by reading the Bible, it turned out that when they did that, there was so much evidence for him, for God's existence that they actually became converted and became Christians and became proponents for Christianity. I mean, Paul is probably the most obvious example of that in the, in the Bible. But what you see with all this information, we've talked about Answers in Genesis, Institute for Creation Research is another one. There's so much um, information that supports creation and supports God, God's existence, that people that actually look into this, you know, they're going to have to decide what they believe. And, and they're going to have a lot of evidence that they're going to have to explain away. There's a very famous verse in Romans, which I, I don't have in front of me, but basically says, we look at creation, we're without excuse. Uh, mm -hmm. Even even yeah. if we, Romans even one. if we never, yeah, Romans 1. Even if we yeah. never hear the gospel, like we kind of have it inside of us, our our uh, our senses and our just our instinct, everything about the world around us, it kind of screams the existence of God, and that's without all this information. So when when we're taking all this recent evidence from the field of information science, it's just adding to evidence that that proves God's existence. It's hard. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to believe that there's people that could could see all this and still explain away the existence of God. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm especially referring to just atheism in general. Uh, yeah, believing... it's like, um, you know, Josh McDowell's book. Like you said, he, he set out to disprove the Bible. Yeah. I mean, he was adamant about that. Right. He ended up writing the book that says evidence that demands a verdict. That's so, right. To That's your right. point. One of the, yeah, it was one of the um, mm. first real apologetics books that I can think of that really had a, I, I'm sure it didn't start the apologetics um, movement, but I'm, I mean, I, I'm sure apologetics has been around uh, for centuries, but when I well, think of modern, modern day apologetics, Peter 315, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but when I think of like the modern day apologetics mm. movements and stuff, I think of his book. And it's just crazy to think that he started out as a, a complete unbeliever. So now you had some quotes from Dr. Git that really tie into some of this. Did you want to go yeah. over those? 
I mean, he may take the, yeah. So these are a few quotes from Dr. Vernegut announced ahead of time. It should be noted that activities of all living organisms are controlled by programs comprising information. I think that's interesting because he's saying there's actually programs in these living organisms. <laughs> and then another quote he made was, because information is required for all life processes, it can be stated unequivocally that information is an essential characteristic of all life. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, all effort to explain life processes in terms of physics and chemistry will all in terms of physics and chemistry only, will always be unsuccessful. Right. And this, and this is a fundamental problem confronting present-day biology based on the evolution. Right, right. So I referenced earlier the process of a, a biogenesis. So let me just talk, because that ties into exactly what you just read. So that third one you read is, all effort to explain life processes in terms of physics and chemistry only will always be unsuccessful. So basically what that's saying uh, in the theory of evolution, like everyone's heard of the Big Bang, which supposedly set all these things in motion. So the Big Bang theory states that everything, all the energy and matter were condensed at one point and then exploded. And then billions of years later, the Earth was eventually formed. And on the Earth, you had kind of a, a primordial soup environment. And in that prim primordial primordial soup you had different elements and eventually given enough time and again that's why they they have the billions of years those elements sort of coagulated into a living cell now that theory that theory has been around for a pretty long time what a lot of people didn't realize and i think we're going to get into this in the second episode what a lot of people don't realize about that living cell as simple as you might think it is it's exceedingly complex a, a single cell in your body for example, there's there's way more going on than you might think and way more than people realized when they first started coming up with these theories about the primordial soup. And that's really the problem that evolution has. It can't explain how non-living matter could come together to form a living cell because there's so many moving parts that are interdependent of one another. We'll get into that as well um, down the road, something called... Um, Irreducible complexity. Basically, the idea that you can't, one part can't evolve by itself. But anyway, this process of non-living matter becoming a living cell is called a biogenesis, and it's it's never been observed in nature. We've tried to duplicate it in labs. People have, scientists have tried to duplicate it for decades, and it's like you, like it's like Doctor Gitt said. Um, all effort to explain that process in terms of just using physics and chemistry just it doesn't happen. And the reason is it basically basically boils down to information. The information that is in the these cells is so complex that there's just no way to explain it without attributing it to an intelligent uh, creator. Somebody put it there. Uh, somebody had to set it in motion. And a lot of times you'll see people use um, kind of this, I don't know what you call it, like a domino analogy. Like you have all these dominoes in a row. Who set the first domino in motion to, to knock all these other dominoes down? And, and an evolutionist might say, well, there was another domino in front of the first domino. And that domino is what set it all in motion. And all they've done is sort of move the process back one step. And this is done all the time. There's, there's a movie called Expelled with Ben Stein. I think it came out in 2008. It's a famous movie about um, intelligent design. And in that movie, he's interviewing, I think it's Richard Dawkins, I want to say. Yeah, I think it's Richard Dawkins. Yeah, and he interviews him 
it basically asks him, you know, if if life didn't come from God, like what? How would you explain, you know, where who where's the initial uh, life come from? And Richard Dawkins basically argued that life was um, planted here by. He said a, a, his possible explanation was that life was planted by an alien species. And it's the same concept. Like basically all he did there was sort of push it back one step. So it was who created the alien species? Uh, he doesn't have an answer for that. But uh, you'll see evolutionists will do this a lot with some of these things. And so you can push it back as long as you want. You can take complex organisms like our, like human beings and say, oh, well, we came from apes and apes came from this and this came from this. And eventually it all came down from one one living cell, but where did that cell come from? And that's that's why a biogenesis uh, is such a problem for evolution. It's the T minus zero thing. Where did it all come from? Um, so you'll hear us refer back to a biogenesis quite often. Dr. Ash, uh, Ashton, Dr. Ashton's book, Evolution Impossible. If if you're interested in going further into this, he has a a, um, a really good chapter on this. Um, but it's really pivotal pivotal to the whole. Um, discussion. There's so many examples in nature of things that are just so complex. I mean, that's just talking about one living cell. There's there's little tiny organisms that we don't even think about all the time that are are so complex in their makeup, in their behavior, in the things they can do. You have a really good example, Dad, of one of those. Did you want to kind of get into that? That yeah, this, this is this would this, be a good yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was going to say this. This is just one example, by the way. So we could, yeah. we could give you legions of these, but here's one. Yeah, it's one example of of many. Um, but I think it's a good route to take toward understanding the concept of information, especially when we get into the latter part of this. But it best serves the observation of nature, actually, to mm -hmm. see what information is out there and what it's done. This interesting example that we can look at is concerns the web spinning about the Sartophora spider. Sartophora? Yeah, Sartophora. But its its web mesh is approximately 0.8 by 1.2 millimeters, which is pretty small. If you have a um, metric ruler around and you can look at the smallest increment on that ruler, that's a millimeter usually, it's not a very long distance. It's very short, but I'm talking about the, the radial. So when I'm talking about the web mesh, I'm talking about the radial threads and mm -hmm. the spiral threads of the spider web. Mm -hmm. And the, radi the radial threads are those threads that kind of begin toward the beginning. I mean, mm -hmm. toward the center of the web and they, they radiate out, which right. is why they call them radial threads. And uh, they appear to start somewhere near the center and radiate out. But the spider attaches them to fixed points in the vicinity of the web location, and they hold the web in place. Right. The spiral threads are those that go from radial thread to radial thread, kind of in a circular pattern, and from the center and all, all the way out to the end. And they form that kind of a web-like configuration that ensnares those unsuspecting insects that later become a meal for the web spinner. But uh, or, or or unsuspecting people that are unfortunate. To yeah, walk that through. too. That happened to me. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> it wasn't quite strong enough to hold me, but I was overweight. <laughs> but to see this in live context, these intersections where if you're standing back from the web and you look at a spider web, you know you see these radial threads and the spiral threads, and they just appear to be crossing each other. But it, to see what actually 
goes on, especially in the case of the Satophora spider, it would take a very high magnification of an electron microscope to mm. see what's actually happening at those intersections. Mm-hmm. But the design and the structure is it's not a simple one, but it's uh, in fact you could consider it very rather brilliant. Mm-hmm. And the spider uses his available materials very economically to achieve the rigidity and the strength that is required to hold these struggling insects. So I already did uh, describe to you the radial and spiral threads of the web. And it would appear to the naked eye, like I said, that the radial and the spiral threads just cross at intersecting points. But that's, like I said, that's not all that's taking place there. So again, if you could go to that electron microscope that you have tucked away in your garage and just <laughs> and just zero, zero in on these apparent junction points, are, are not just joined at the junction points only, but the spider runs a material parallel along, say, let's say a, th- a radial thread. He's running a material. And then when he reaches a spiral thread that intersects, he will make a left or right turn and he'll continue laying that third material down for a short distance. And then he, he solders it down with these very, very fine threads, mm-hmm. even even finer than the web material itself. And that continues to add the, the tensile strength required to hold his victims. Wow. But, and it'll, it'll repeat that process over the entire building of the web, which enforces the web, giving it the required strength, like I said. Mm-hmm. Now, we, very intelligent humans, will employ an architect to design a building structure or some type, after which the plans, once they're approved by the officials, are handed off to a builder who then proceeds to build the structure and complete the design. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, the architect, you know, they have to go through several years of a schooling in order to learn his skills and gain the license to use it. And the same is true of the builder, who is usually an engineer, mm-hmm. who also go through, goes through years of education to gain the knowledge to calculate necessary materials and techniques for structural strength requirements. Right. right. Got a lot of S words in there. Um, <laughs> But uh, the spider is like a versatile genius because it plans out the webs like the architect, and then he carries out his own plans as a proficient builder or weaver. Mm-hmm. So, and um, he also pos- possesses the knowledge of a chemist who can synthesize silk using a computer-controlled manufacturing process on board, and he uses that silk at manufacture to spin the web. And so this spider has a proficiency that would make it appear that it it had completed courses in structural engineering, chemistry, architecture, and information science, and not only taking those courses, but also completing them at a very high level. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes you wonder, and it should make everyone wonder, who instructed the spider? Like, what university did he go to? Where did he acquire that specialized knowledge? Who was the advisor of the spider? Mm-hmm. But in in addition to all that, it's also quite the environmentalist because they eat their they eat their web in the morning. <laughs> so every morning they eat their web, at, at least this is a topher spider, and at, at which time the material is chemically processed within its body, and he reuses it, reuses that same material to uh, make a new web. 
That's so it's, it's almost as if it were prepared to be compliant, even in today's environmentally conscious culture, which considering the fact, this is something to consider, considering the fact that evolution is supposedly a trial and error type of process requiring millions of years, it's hard to imagine how it would take into account something like this that would be happening in the future. Yeah, that's, that's so true. So, so here's what's really interesting about that. I mean, there's a lot of things really interesting about that. By the way, the fact that they can eat the web and then reuse that, I, I, I can't even, I, I had no idea before you, before, you, uh, before you told me about all that, everything that goes into the spider and what, what it does to make its webs. But there's a, there's a movie called Jurassic Park. I'm sure everybody's, just about everybody's seen it. I think there's like five of them now. And in that movie, there's a part, uh, I think it's one of the main characters. I think it might be Dr. Grant. Uh, and they're in the park. This is this will be the first movie after everything's kind of gone haywire and the, the dinosaurs are loose. And they're trying to understand how it all happened. And the dinosaurs, for those of you who don't know, the dinosaurs in the park, I think, were engineered to um, not breed. The the creator of the park made them so they wouldn't breed. And by the way, I'm assuming everyone's seen this because I, I, I guess, Dad, you know, like I was way into dinosaurs as a <laughs> yeah. kid. Uh, my yeah. brother and I had a, a club. We were called the Dinosaur Club. Um, yeah, you developed a dinosaur handshake, which we was had a handshake. Very and innovative. Uh, yeah. Sometime I'll have to show it to people. <laughs> but uh, anyway, a little scary. <laughs> but uh, so. I'm assuming, I guess I'm assuming everyone's seen the movie, but for those who haven't, uh, the dinosaurs were engineers, so they could not breed. And when they started going through the park, they noticed that they found some dinosaur eggs that had hatched. And so the the main character, he, he looks up uh, kind of off into the distance and he says something like, life found a way. And there's kind of this awe and amazement that, and that what these creatures can do, you know? And the idea there is that their evolutionary process, they find ways to adapt and, and which by the way, there's something in the theory of evolution called natural selection, which is not just part of the evolutionary theory. We actually believe that as well. So there's a difference between adaptation and evolution and we won't get into that now, but the idea I think portrayed in the movie is that these animals, they they find ways to adapt and survive. And, and that's kind of the underpinning of the whole movie is uh, it's really loaded with evolutionary ideas. In fact, the, the main premise for what happened to the dinosaur or the main explanation for what happened to the dinosaurs is of course that they evolved into birds. That's another th uh, theme that runs throughout the whole thread of those movies. But anyway, so he, he says life found a way. And there's so much packed into that statement that I'm almost hesitant to go into it. But I, I just want to touch on this because there's two ways to look at what you just, everything you just described with the little spider and what it can do. There's two different ways to look at that. And earlier I talked about Romans 1. So I'm going to go back to Romans 1 now that I have it open. In Romans 1, it was verse 19 was the verse I was thinking of before. And it basically reads, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And most of you are very familiar with this verse. Chapter 20 goes on to say, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
so they are without excuse, referring to people. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So basically what it's saying there is what we've done as humans is we've taken God's glory and everything that he's done and we've attributed it to his creation. And we, we see that all the time in, in the world around us. We see it, uh, you know, we, we idolize other people. We make people gods. In, in the case of Jurassic Park, we've made we've basically made the animals gods. Like the animals are doing the the animals are adapting. They're doing all this. There's still that sense of awe and wonder, but it's not directed at the the one who created them. There's a uh, uh, I referenced this earlier. The John MacArthur series. It's called the Battle for the Beginning. And in that series, he talks about something called. Well, he talks about chance, <laughs> mm -hmm. because what evolutionists are doing when they when they do this are they are attributing everything they see in nature to they're attributing it to something, and they don't realize what they're saying is that chance created all these things. Given enough time, chance sort of makes this happen. Chance caused those dinosaurs to be able to breed again, even though that that part of their DNA had been removed. Somehow, chance caused them to evolve so that they could breed again. The evolutionist believes that chance is responsible for a, a biogenesis. Chance is what causes life to form from non-living matter. The problem with that is that they're, they're attributing things to chance as though chance were a creative force. The point that John MacArthur makes, and he makes it in a very eloquent way that I'm, I'm probably not anywhere close to that here, <laughs> but he basically says that chance does not exist. Chance is not a thing. Chance is something we use to explain the world around us. Chance. So for example, you might say that you met somebody due to chance. Like they, they happened to be going to the same place you were going and there was, it was a chance meeting. But the truth is that you were going that way and that person was going that way. And that's why you met. We would, we as Christians would say that there's providence to that, and God, God is sovereign, and He's He's in control of all things, and there's no such thing as chance, and certainly in that worldview. But even in uh, a non-Christian worldview, chance is not really a thing. And what we do is we attribute we, uh, not we, but uh, like an evolutionary scientist, basically, is attributing all of these changes to something that literally does not exist. Um, I don't know if I explained that great, but that's basically the, the premise behind um, what John MacArthur was saying. And you you see that very clearly in, in like, for example, in the Jurassic Park movie, you see that played out and it's, it's it kind of go it's very subtle and it can go unnoticed. But behind that one little statement, life found a way, it's packed with all kinds of, of faulty premises, to be honest. And like I said, we could we could talk about this for a long time, but when you talk about the spider, you have to. You were talking about all the things the spider could do. Just that one example, you have to you have to decide whether you believe that something created that spider, some uh, not something but someone, someone very intelligent, created that spider, or if that spider, all the things that it takes for that spider to do that, to eat the web, spit it back out, you know, reuse it. And you talked about that, all the engineering parts of it. How does he know where to turn and, you know, all that stuff. All that stuff 
you have to attribute that to meaningless chance. And it just, it, it blows my mind that there's so many smart, and these are smart people we're talking about. These are not, we're not talking about, we're not saying these people aren't smart. We're saying that, that they just, there's a, there's a certain blindness there. And it's a, it's like a willing blindness to not, to not believe what's right in front of them. And it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. And it can be very frustrating for people, but nevertheless, that's part, again, it seems to be come with the territory, as I've said a couple of times already. So we want to get to, um, we're kind of wrapping up a couple, couple last points, uh, in this first episode. So, um, Dr. Git also had kind of these three elements to what makes information information. And this is kind of the key, kind of boils down to everything we want to say. So, Dad, did you want to kind of take us home with that? Yeah, Dr. Werner Git, he, uh, he points out through the natural sciences that the world around us is observed for the purpose of discovering the rules by which our Earth is governed which kind of lines up with uh, what you were talking about in Romans 1, where mm-hmm. the very creation kind of speaks of it, God's glory. And, and that's what he's saying. That's, that's what the natural sciences are there for, for observation and experimentation, which make up the basic method of the endeavor to identify the laws of nature, which is really where science began, because the original scientists were, in fact, believers, were Christians. And that was their purpose, was to discover how is this world put together? You know, how did God put it together? And what that's laws right. did he establish for us to, to live by? That's but, right. Uh, and, and, yeah. it's, and, and we're talking about big scientific names that everybody would recognize. Oh, yeah, like, like uh, Sir Isaac and, Newton. Newton, yeah. These yeah. were all Christians. Uh, right. And they were just using science to explain what God had created. Right. Um, so, anyway. Yeah. So, by way of observation and numerous experiments, I'm talking now, I'm speaking of the Department of Information Science itself. Through observation and numerous experiences, it's determined that information must contain three essential components, which you were referring to, um, Justin. And those components are information, it must contain a coded message. Right. Uh, The coded message has an expected action. Right. And it has an intended purpose. And by that definition, we consider this podcast to be information. That's right. And no, I mean, I don't think anybody listening to this would assume that all the words we're saying and uh, are just random, that we're just rambling and out comes this, this podcast. And I say that obviously facetiously, but there's a tremendous amount of planning that, that goes into even one podcast. Right, we read books. Mm. Those books, tons of planning went into those books, and I think in the next episode we'll talk more about that. But like, no one would assume like a book was written without a plan. There's the old monkey and the typewriter analogy, which is kind of a famous one when people talk about this stuff. Uh, If a monkey was in a room by himself with a typewriter, again going back to the chance thing, a lot of scientists would say that given enough time, eventually a monkey could type out not only a book but maybe a there's a there's an analogy that people use. Or a novel, I think it is. Maybe it's a novel. But whatever it is, it doesn't matter how much time. Our, our contention is it, it doesn't matter how much time because that number, that mathematical, uh, that actual number of mathematical impossibility will, be, will come into play. There's no way a, no, a monkey randomly typing 
would we'll be, would create we'll something. Beat the odds, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so this podcast is the same way. Like everything, and and that's true of all information. That was the whole point of uh, why we went into all this stuff about information. Uh, is there's intelligence intelligence behind all of it, and even more so on a molecular level in nature, like we saw with the spider. And the the pro I just want to kind of wrap up with this idea. So the problem with the time analogy, we've kind of already gotten into it. Like it, it still it doesn't account for the ultimate problems of a biogenesis, the T minus zero issue with that, and then the T minus zero issue with the Big Bang. What came before? What what came before square one? What came before? Who created that? Who created the thing that created the thing that created the thing? <laughs> and you, you see that theme kind of come up over and over again when you're talking about this. And it's amazing that two different people can look at the same thing and see com two completely different things. And that's what you see when you're talking about worldviews. The best analogy I can think of this, that think of to explain this is the Grand Canyon. If you had, and some of you have probably heard this already, but if you have two people that are looking at, they're standing atop the Grand Canyon and they're looking down at the river that's, flowing down through the middle of it someone who believes in the bible sees that canyon and believes that the canyon was caused by catastrophism it's it's a term used to describe creation by catastrophe christians believe there were two catastrophic occurrences if you go back in history so one would be creation itself was an upheaval of the natural order <laughs> i don't know if that's the best way to say that but mm. creation was a disruption and then the global flood was a disruption of the natural order. And an evolutionist would look back and say, everything is as it is today. Everything has always existed as it is today. So when they're looking at the Colorado River that's flowing through the Grand Canyon, um, and they look at the rate of erosion, so the rate of erosion would be the evidence. That's, mm -hmm. that's what both the creation scientists and the evolution scientists would believe or would take into account. Mm -hmm. that, that rate of erosion is the same. It's measurable. You can't deny it. Like the, that's the rate at which the river is currently cutting through the canyon. Like, and it's I say cutting. It's I use that very loosely because it's it's such a slow rate of erosion that that's why it requires millions and millions of years. But um, an evolutionist who doesn't have the Bible as a foundation, of course, does not believe in a global flood and does not believe um, in a biblical account of creation. So he believes that that river has been cutting the canyon at the same rate for millions and millions of years. Um, so he can look at, they can both be looking at the same thing and the evolutionist is saying, this canyon is so-and-so millions of years old. And the biblical creationist says that canyon is so-and-so thousands of years old. Um, two completely different ways of looking at the same thing. And it's pretty fascinating. But what is interesting about that, and this analogy in particular, uh, is that there are examples of things in the present day in our lifetimes where we have seen things being created by catastrophic occurrences, and they, they are created very quickly. Everyone has seen the powerful effects of flooding. Water is a, a very powerful force. <laughs> mm. um, everyone, I'm sure, has seen in their local areas, but, I mean, you can think of Hurricane Katrina or or examples of major flooding. Dad, you and I have been to, or at least we've seen Mount St. Helens, I think, from a distance. It's kind of a drive-by. Yeah. <laughs> drive-by viewing. <laughs> but Mount St. Helens, um, most of you know, erupted in 1980. Mm -hmm. um, there's a canyon that was created by the, 
the resulting erosion from Mount St. Helens. And it was right. created in a matter of days. Uh, we literally have before and after pictures, and you can see those if you go online. Um, the can I don't remember what the name of the canyon is, but it was it was created literally in a matter of days, and it's I think one fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon. One fortieth, yes. But if you look at it, it looks remarkably similar to the like the structures mm -hmm. and and when you see sedimentary rock, like whenever I see sedimentary rock, I think, oh, I wonder if that was caused by the global flood or if there was another catastrophe that caused that. I, I never think in terms of like layers of sand being laid down really slowly over millions and millions of years. And there's all kinds of other problems that come into that. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that in, that in future episodes, fossilization, like what, yeah, what it takes to create a fossil. Right. Um, there's all kinds of holes in the evolutionary theory. But my point in saying all that is it all comes down to your worldview. And how we look at information all comes to, down to our worldview, how we fit all that information. And that's, it's, that's the foundation for the, the next few episodes we're going to have and this whole series, really. So we're well past an hour at this point. So we're going we're gonna to wrap this up and we're going to finish up our talk on information science next time. So there's going to be, like I said, two parts. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you'll help us spread the word. And again, my name is Justin Moranti, and here with my dad, Robin, and we will be back for episode two, and we hope to see you then. Thank you again for listening, and we will, we will see you soon.